podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. Enrollment Resources, starting with Greg, and then I'll let Greg introduce Joe. Hi guys, uh, Greg Meeklejohn. I'm a co-founder of Enrollment Resources, and we do uh, process uh, improvement work uh, in the area of enrollment management, and we find ways to, for schools to improve uh, uh, their website performance or how their recruiting and admissions processes are working, um, all with an eye to creating uh, greater revenues for schools, um, which uh, help to create a healthier school environment. So uh, to my left is uh, Joe, uh, Joe Girard. And uh, within Enrollment Resources, as I mentioned, we work on the recruiting admissions side to help improve conversion rates. And Joe is our team leader um, in this area. He's a thought leader in terms of uh, admissions conversion. And so he's a valuable member of our panel today. Welcome, Joe. Thank you for having me. Exciting. Great. So, uh, Martin, why don't you take it away? And uh, we have some valuable information to share with our, um, I guess this would be characterized as new research, hey? Absolutely. Actually, it hasn't even been published yet. This is the brand new first coming out party for this research. So just today, guys, we're going to just start with a really brief um, introduction of Velocify and Enrollment Resources so you understand where we fit in the picture and why we did this research. Give you a little background of the research and how it happened, uh, then go right into the results both the outbound contact strategy and the impound call uh, results, and then go into QA at the end. So if you have questions along the way, feel free to ask them. If you can, make reference to the page number. At the bottom right, you see the page number. So if you say, why is it that way, we'll understand what you're referring to. Um, and then at the end, of the, we'll get into some questions. So quickly about Velocify, the only reason I bring it up is some of this, if, for those of you who don't know us, it's important to understand where we're coming from a software as a service package that's designed for enrollment, uh, the enrollment process from the time the inquiry comes in until the time uh, it gets turned over to the student information system. We're just the admissions piece of it, which is one of the reasons we love enrollment resources so much is because we have such, we have 100%, nearly 100% crossover on their admissions consulting side of things. So we like to automate a lot of their best practices as well. So we have a lot of clients in common. We, uh, we love that they seek the truth and they're a great company. Um, we One of the important things to keep in mind is that we'll be talking about best practices in a, in a few minutes. And those best practices derive from us looking at millions of data points and coming up with, hey, what's actually working? Stop guessing of what actually works in the normal process and actually use data and actually see what works. So with that, I'll turn it over to Greg to talk a little bit more about enrollment resources. Hi, folks. Uh, so we have historically uh, been advocates in the proprietary career education uh, sector. Um, periodically, we will have a, a not-for-profit school say, those uh, proprietary people seem to be eating our lunch. Um, what are they doing? And then we'll talk to them about ways they can incorporate some best practice into the not-for-profit side of things. Um, we're founded in 2003. We work uh, in the U.S. and Canada. We have had clients in England as well. And we are deep into research and testing. 
we test all of the um, elements of uh, enrollment management using um, lean management, actually, as a, a, a way to um, an operating system, if you will. We took uh, lean management processes and readopted them for higher education. And so we've, many of our people here have been trained in Kaizen. Um, we've, um, we're the first uh, education uh, company, in part because of this, to be certified by Google as a professional partner. And we're the first company of its kind to be certified worldwide as a B Corporation, which is an auditing process for triple bottom line companies. I think that's enough, Martin. Um, that's great. That's great background. I think that's important for people to know because your perspective is while you, you've been working with hundreds of schools and you have you know a lot of the qualitative reasons and that's why we're great, uh, such a great marriage is because we've got the quantitative but not the qualitative. So a lot of what you're seeing in the next couple of slides is going to be us telling you the what and Greg and Joe telling you the why. Yeah. So, so the, the secret shopper process we did was you know, based around a couple assumptions. One is, why are people acting the way they are? And what is there really a difference between these types of schools? Um, so we sought to seek that out by reaching out to 10 nonprofit and 10 for-profit online schools. So they're all online. Mostly we had MBA programs, so we try to have the same type of uh, uh, program across all of them for some normalization, but those that didn't offer MBAs, we offered some. We went for some other professional sort of, uh, degree, uh, like a master in education or something like that, because it's not. Um, it, it's a working degree, if you will. So the the study was split into two parts. Philosophy filled out uh, inquiry forms at each of these twenty schools. We filled out uh, five at each school, and then tracked the response. Enrollment resources actually called in to the schools and actually know the performance. So the first part of the study I'll be talking more towards because it's about the Velocify results from response to the inquiry forms. And the second part of the study Greg and Joe will be focused on because it's their, their results from calling into the schools. All right, so let's talk about that. How did we do it? As I said, we, we followed the forms. We submitted it. We started the clock immediately. We watched it for 22 days. And the reason we do 22 days is our research has shown that there is an optimal contact strategy and there's an optimal amount of time you should give that contact strategy to run. Um, and that's 22 days. Um, and then, then finally, we, we were tracking it very specifically. So when we filled out information on the, in the contact forms, each individual inquiry was assigned a specific phone number, name, and email, so we knew that any calls going to that number was coming from that specific, um, that specific school's response to inquiry form. So it was very specific. We had 100 data, 100 people, fake people uh, inquiring about schools to these 20 schools, five each, and they were unique. So um, we then noticed, uh, we then uh, put things into two sets of metrics, speed and persistent key performance, uh, persistence key performance indicators. Speed to call, speed to email, and we'll talk about why that's important in a second, and number of call attempts and number of emails sent. So we have found, looking at the research, that if the faster you reach out to somebody who's interested in going to school, the higher your enrollment rate's going to be. So if you reach out to someone, for example, in a minute after they inquire, you're four, four to almost five times as likely 
to enroll them than if you reach out to them at any later point in the, in the enrollment process. So, yeah, go ahead. This is fascinating in that um, most people will really don't really view internet leads in, in a different way. Um, they characterize them differently than they should be. Um, Joe, we, we always view um, an internet lead or an internet inquiry really as a phone call that's on hold. Do you care to expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we think about how we make purchases, if I'm interested in, in buying something and I go online and I fill something out, um, I'm in that mode right now and I'm looking to connect with somebody. Um, nothing drives people more crazy than having to do run around on, on all sorts of systems. And so if somebody gets a hold of me right away and helps me answer the questions I'm looking for, that's great and I can start to make decisions. And usually the faster person that gets a hold of me, I'll, I'll work with. But, you know, with today, you know, distractions, people do their research and they maybe pick up their phone and off they go and they go drive and do errands. And so if you can get a hold of these people right where in that, they're in that hot spot, you have a huge chance of connecting with them. And connection rates um, are huge in this business. And I guess that in part is because um, the way the Internet works now, it's a bit of a Gordian knot in terms of how people research and look for, um, look for opportunities to go to school, as an example. Uh, and then they might be looking at 12, 15 different websites. And if, if you can actually break that kind of zombie-like pattern of just mm -hmm. drifting around on the Internet with a real live, high-quality human being with a high-quality interaction, it's jarring in a positive way. And then uh, most people will tend to just want to melt away and deal with the human being because people crave human interaction. Martin, um, you, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that, Martin? Uh, it makes perfect sense. I, if, if I fill out a form and then, and my life's busy, but obviously not the most busy human being in the world, but my life's busy enough that if I fill out a form and I'm moving on to something else after that, I'm not staring at the computer or looking at my phone waiting for something to happen. I've got to keep the kids from fighting or drop someone off at school or do something like that. Saturday, i got a soccer practice or whatever. Um, but hey, I didn't say something about this chart. This chart and the next couple, it's important to say a couple things. This is based on previous research we've done. As you can see, this one was done in 2012. But we update it periodically to make sure that still Netflix are still good. This is not done based on the 100 data points from today's study. This is from tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of data points from before today. So there's more simple. research to look at, Martin. So let's, uh, let's have a look. So this one we then looked at. Um, hey, how many times should, should you reach out to somebody? Yes, if you call them 10,000 times, they'll eventually pick up the phone just to tell you the cops are on their way for harassment. Yay, I contacted them. That doesn't affect enrollment. That actually might negatively affect enrollment or your reputation for that matter. So how, the, the person, of your people who enroll at a school, and this is again their, our client's data, of the people that enroll at the school, how many calls did it, get, did it take to get them on the phone? So 93% of the schools that enrolled were contacted by the, 90, by the third contact, the sixth contact attempt. So yes, you can keep trying, but you'll see it plateaus. So at a certain point, if you're not calling enough, you're wasting, you're, you're not putting enough effort into the person who's interested in, in talking to you. And if you call them too much longer after that, you're wasting the time of your admissions team. Okay. So we put this all together, and you can see there's also emails and voicemails there. We have this 22-day contact strategy that I'm referring to and that we'll use later on in the study where we have six calls, this little, sorry, 
we have six calls, and you'll see the red phones and the little voicemail symbols of the six calls. We even know which days are best to leave voicemails. And we have um, uh, an email strategy as well. There's four emails, there's five emails involved, and you can see the timing of that. So there is actually a best practices study, best practices out there. Yes, your school might differ, but if you haven't run the analysis, it's a great place to start. Joe, um, you have done a lot of analysis in, out in the field over the years. Um, you, in broad terms, why don't you characterize what Martin has down here as best practice? I think it's really, uh, it's finally there's just something that people can run on, hey? Absolutely. I mean, the, the whole purpose of what we do is, is about influencing decisions in, in a way that's comfortable for the students. And one thing I always come back to is, you know, it doesn't matter how much tech or CRM or the data and the studies, it really boils back down to the customer service. And so, you know, this is great. This is awesome to follow a repeatable best practice. Um, but in those in those times, we don't want to be just going through the motions. We need to really reach out and try and connect with these um, these customers and serve them. And so this best practice allows us to try and get a hold of them right when they're, uh, like we said, in that hotspot, and then over a series of days give them something that's valuable because they're in decision-making mode. And that's what this is geared towards, is helping them make a good decision. Because going back to school, they're talking to a bunch of different schools, and they're trying to make sense of what's out there. So this is a perfect process to help them navigate what's going on in the information. Awesome. Martin, what's, uh, what do you have next for us? So let's talk about the stereotype. And this goes back to why we did this damn research in the first place. I mean, let's be, let's be honest. We hear and you see in the popular press and the education press, um, the Chronicle will say, oh, those for-profit schools are so aggressive and the um, ivy-covered walls of schools will never deign to reach out to someone by phone because really an education is so much more than something just having a 20-minute phone conversation. So when we were talking jointly about doing research, we said, hey, are those stereotypes actually right? Right? What did you find? Well, we found, let's first actually do the first poll. So you'll see in a second a little question come up on the screen. And it's a poll because we want to see if our perceptions are actually your perceptions. So do this first poll um, and want to know what you think of it. So you'll see in your screen, we'll give it a few minutes to actually uh, run. And hopefully you guys are choose something to vote on. Oh, I see the numbers going up. There you go. We'll give it another 10 seconds. Well, I'm curious to see the results, eh, Joe? <laughs> All right. So we had about half everybody voted. 40% believe that the for-profits uh, would uh, take about an hour to call, and the not-for-profits take about two days to call. 30% believe that the for-profits take five minutes to call, and the not-for-profits take four hours to call. And then the remaining was split among their options. So it looks like people in general think that the for-profits are super fast to call and uh, an inquiry, and that the nonprofits are super fast, are super slow to call an inquiry. So let's look at the actual results. So here it is. Um, on 100 data points, over tw uh, we found that the, from the time that we filled out the form 
until the time we got our first email before profits averaged six and a half hours. <clears throat> and it's important to note that we didn't do this at six o'clock on a Friday. Um, we were always local. To, we were always working hours local to the school. Um, and we actually, in general, didn't do any increase on Fridays because it wasn't fair in case people did half days or short days or something. So we generally did it Monday through Thursday, sometimes first thing in the morning on Friday. But in general, we gave them very much working hours. So the not-for-profits, and here's, I think, the greatest surprise here. The not-for-profits are making calls, and then generally, they're making them quickly. And again, these are online programs, but it's very interesting. So Greg, yeah. what are your thoughts on the calls? Yeah. Well, well, I think it's um, it, it, what's interesting to me is that you can be uh, 12 hours or six and a half hours, which in broad business terms to have people interrupting their day to reaching back out to prospects is not um, really that that terribly bad. But the way that the this beast, the Internet, is constructed, if you're not back to somebody within a couple of minutes, the the quality of that lead diminishes because of the the the, the act, people are so active online that it's like they have um, the shiny object syndrome and and so you you could get be really proud that your reps are calling an internet lead within an hour it would be still the same as if they were calling them in two days and to me that's what I guess what Joe and I really say to our clients is an hour is good as two days. You need to, and, and human beings, it's impossible for a human being to get back to somebody within a minute unless you have a dedicated staff person. Therefore, you need some kind of a technology assist that will basically turn that email into a phone call. Uh, Joe, do you, do you care to expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. If you think about even just the psychology of, of how potential students interact with reps, if you are falling in sort of the middle of this, even an hour or two hours, and you know your competitors are doing pretty much the same thing, if not later, when those emails come in, uh, you get lost in the shuffle. So now you're, you know, it's, it's a crapshoot for you when they're going to get a hold of you. But typically when these students call in, um, they decide based on the relationship they, they make with the rep. And most of the time, it's the one that builds the fastest relationship, not necessarily even the best. So if your competitors even have reps that aren't as good as yours, if they're getting a hold of these people first, often these guys are going to make decisions. So that's why speed to call is huge. Right, and, and, and I think what's important to note here is that the first stereotype that's been dispelled is that the for-profits are not calling you in 30 seconds, and the not-for-profits mm -hmm. are not calling you. They are calling you, and they're actually not too far behind their for-profit compatriots. Looking at the email, though, it's very interesting because the average email from a for-profit, for the first email, right, this is not a string of emails, the first one, thanks for your submission, which is usually the autoresponder, it took over a day to get that first one on the average. The not-for-profits were actually relatively fast, and I think my theory on this is that email does not require much staffing, and in general, not-for-profits are not staffed to, make, to do a tremendous amount of outreach. What do you guys think of that theory? Joe, what are your thoughts? I would say so. I think, you know, often uh, the for-profits are trying to make a bunch of phone calls and get a hold of people, but the, the lack of email there, um, there's an opportunity to, to send some information to provide some value about your brand and what to expect and sort of set the tone for the, 
basically the relationship they're trying to build. I think, Martin, you're bang on. Um, you know, the for-profits, they probably have a, a couple people in place, and we send some emails. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the service is there. And so I think for-profits, they do, and maybe that helps create that stereotype as a series of calls, but they're missing that chance to um, have multiple engagement points. I think also what's interesting is there's a, uh, with uh, um, not-for-profit uh, organizations, they tend to be larger institutions on average, and there's um, some usually pretty deep investment into um, uh, websites. And part of that investment would be um, an autoresponder setup where a nice sales letter is sent instantly after somebody fills out a form is is would be my sense of it as well. Great mm -hmm. point. Great point. So then we talked about what percent of all the inquiries we sent to the for-profits and all the inquiries we sent to the non-profits, what percent were called quickly. And it's surprising that at the very going back to the, the misperceptions, um, the general consensus is the for-profits would nail it and the non-profits would not. And you look, the most telling thing I think of the green bars are not too dissimilar, right? We got 48% of not-for-profits and 60% of for-profits were called their, their I'm sorry, 48% of inquiries were called, non-profit inquiries were called in minutes. And 60% of for-profit inquiries were called in minutes, which is not that different. What's more telling is that 10% of for-profit inquiries on the far right side didn't receive a single phone call, whereas 20% of not-for-profit inquiries did not receive a single phone call. And I think that is more the stereotype. The red is more the stereotype than the green. So what's interesting to me is uh, the, um, the stigma of the poor, horrendous customer service with the, when your kid goes off to university, um, when, maybe when you're looking at career-oriented um, programs delivered by not-for-profits such as master's degrees in business or what have you, that the, these, these particular schools might be um, adopting a more business-like or metric-oriented approach. Good point. Great point. Versus their, their ground-based or less uh, career-focused degrees. That's a great point. Yeah, the undergrad uh, cousins there that they... Yeah, and so this, we do the similar analysis with speed to email, and they're actually the not-for-profits, again, perform much better, just like the other chart showed, where the not-for-profits were really quick. I mean, almost 80% um, got their increase, actually over 80%, got, an, got their first email out to it, their, their net increase within minutes. Um, and the for-profits said it was about 50% of the increase got uh, an email in minutes, um, but 4% did not get a single email. And that includes the thank you for your submission email which is a no-brainer, people. Joe, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it blows my mind because I would think if I'm interested in getting something, buying something, and I get an email days or weeks later, I go, wait, what, what is this about? <laughs> so, you know, there's a, there's a big missed opportunity there to connect with people right when they're um, ready to look at information. And I think part of the discussion we're having right now is assuming that you are competing. And if in your online program, you're not, you are competing because it's the entire country, if not entire North America, if not the entire world, who is reaching out to you. And they're probably not reaching out only to you. So if you take weeks to get back to somebody and 
there are other schools that are competing against you, whether they're better or not than you are, take hours, days to get back to somebody, you, by the time you reach out to someone, it may be too late. And you may be the best school in the world for them, but they're not going to hear from you. And it's probably the first indicator, and we'll get to this later on in the discussions when we should look at enrollment resources test results. But it's the first indicator of customer service. It's essentially, I mean, it, it's like the virtual example of walking into a store and people ignoring you. That's a great point. So let's do the second poll now. I love being ignored when I want service. <laughs> so, so the next question is, looking at over um, the uh, test results, over, over 22 days, how many times did the schools reach out to the increase? Joe, what I'll do give you this think? one another 10 seconds to run. We can't ask Joe because Joe knows. So we, I know. Yeah, he does. He's cheating. <laughs> cheating. All right, we're going to give the poll another five seconds. Four, three, two, one. And with 50% of you, that's pretty impressive. 50% did it in 30 seconds. Um, so the actually, it's a pretty even split. 30% um, believe that the for-profits would call someone 22 times and the not-profit would call somebody not one time. So that goes to the stereotype of the aggressive for-profit and the passive not-for-profit school. Um, about 28% said that the for-profits would call six times and the not-profit would call six times. And those are best practices. That would be really nice if they did. Um, and right behind that, 26% said that a for-profit call 16 times and the non-profit 12 times. Well, funny you should say that because it turns out that's exactly what happened. The not-for-profits broke the stereotype. And not only were they, as they broke the stereotype before about speed to contact, but they also broke the stereotype of the number of calls they're making. So, and emails, actually. They're actually sent more emails over 22 days than their for-profit compatriots. Guys? What's interesting to me is that both of the non-for-profit and for-profit people are kind of stalking and harassing people with <laughs> Why won't you pick up the phone? Why won't you pick up the phone? Well, yeah. I, I don't. I want, yeah, boy, oh boy, hey. And I think what's important here is people, caller ID exists. So if you think that they don't know you're calling 12 times, or if you've outsourced it to a company that their caller ID shows 12 times and they know it's from a school because someone's calling them. I'd like to your, yeah. You go ahead, Martin. Sorry. No, you, I'm just saying it's a reputation hit. Well, yeah. And, and I think um, it really gets back down to quality. So we do this admissions conversion improvement retainer offering we have. And one of the things we do is we, we teach um, the people who are doing the phoning how to be better connected and respectful and engaging with the prospective students. So if you, um, if you tell a diabetic that they should have a donut, um, they're going to get annoyed, right? Um, and so the point being is you, there needs to be better connection. And so through trial and error or through just empathetic engagement amongst yourselves or research, one can really land on the conversation or the phone message that needs to be left that will actually create some value. So, you know, the overarching theme here, I think, is 
is the regulators are, are moving in a direction, even in the not-for-profit side with school outcomes legislation that's coming down the pipe, uh, that um, on the admissions and recruiting side, you have to give people $1,000 worth of value whether they come to school with you or not. You have to ensure that you leave a prospective student in better shape than when they leave you than when they started with you. And the kind of the stalking thing is going the wrong way. Um, so Joe, it's really about somehow creating a quality engagement so people will want to talk to somebody uh, and not run away from them. You care to speak to that? Yeah, I think you know often um, it, there's a I mean there's a lot of pressure to perform, of course, and so we we put these numbers on the table, so you got to make all these calls and send these voicemails and emails and texts. But often, like when we listen to this stuff and we do even split testing on voicemail, and look at what they're saying. They're saying a lot of stuff without really saying anything, and they're like you said, persistence but don't annoy. Um, and so the reps that that understand that when I'm making a call, before I even pick up that phone, do I have I set my intention? Do I have a purpose behind this? Is this based on a conversation that we've had? But often they just keep picking up phones and doing those those terrible check-in calls. Hey, just wanted to see if you're still thinking about coming to school. And then they don't answer. So then they leave the same voicemail and the same exact email. And w nothing's happening. And so this is where the, the, the call and email process comes in, but it still has to have value and not just be um, more stuff to add to the student's plate. Great point. Martin, so, next? so Why? yeah. So then we looked at. So if you look at, there's an optimal number of calls, right, between zero and a hundred, and the optimal, as in our, according to our previous research, is six. So six is that green band. Less than it is not optimal. Right to more of that is not optimal. And so we kind of grouped into different groups. Orange is undercalled, zero to four. Appropriately called is five to seven. We're giving credit for the five and the seven. Overcalled is eight to twelve, and extremely overcalled, which is egregious, is twelve calls. So, of the all the increase to four profits, eighteen percent were called optimally, and forty-two percent were called more than twelve times. Of the one hundred, I'm sorry, of the increase that we did to four profits, on the not-for-profit side, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, pardon me. I just just jumping in, saying that uh, oxblood uh, coloring on the right for both uh, non-for-profit and for-profit is. Um, that's nasty. Exactly. And again, further dispelling the myth of the passive ivy-covered walls that where they're not doing outreach, in their professional degrees, they are on the online, they are actually um, being pretty aggressive. And this is not only a lesson to the schools that are on the phone that have an online program that are not-for-profit saying, hey, guys, dial it back a bit, but it's also a lesson to the for profits who think that their nonprofit competitors are not doing it. Huh. Well, there we go. We don't want to be throwing rocks from glass houses, do we? Absolutely. Not from inside at least. <laughs> oh, um and then going but the flip side is the more stereotypical non responsive um uh, uh nonprofit school was there because 60% of the increase to not-for-profit schools were called between zero and four times. So there were there there was extremes, if you will, um, on both ends of the not-for-profit increase. Yeah, and if you think about uh, as a student, if you look at the numbers, and I put my hand up and say I'm 
considering taking a program, I'm going to call maybe four or five schools, there's a really good chance that if I call five schools, I'm going to get 60 phone calls. If you look at the numbers. <laughs> that yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where it's like, whoa, I get it. But that's where they're not saying anything in those 60 calls. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, and then on email, um, the same. Th it's also true that there. So we have this optimal range, right, of number of emails, which is between four and six, according to our research. And everything to the left is too little, and everything to the right is too much, and everything to the far right is extremely too much. So there is an optimal range, and you'll see that the for profits, whether listening to our studies or done them their own, are more have more in the op in the optimal range of number of emails than the uh, not for profits. Um, but it's still interesting that this super easy, super cheap method of reaching out to somebody, which is email, is is being underutilized so dramatically. Thirty four percent of our increase to not for profit were got zero to three emails, and a lot of those were zeros, and uh, sixteen percent of the for profits had the same response. Interesting. Uh. So now let's talk a little bit about, I'm going to turn this over more to the enrollment resources guys, uh, Greg and, and Joe, to discuss their methodology and their part of the research. Okay, that sounds great. So folks, um, our, just to reiterate on the methodology of our, um, our mystery shopping, um, we, um, we were given the same list that Velocify used, and uh, we made two shops, uh, which were actual phone calls where we were adopted the uh, persona of a um, somebody in their 30s or 40s looking to advance um, their uh, advance their education, so to to advance their career. They've got kids, uh, they're at home, their spouse works. That was the persona that we offered, and we made two shops for each school. as a total of 40 shops. So statistically, it's not something that you would take say, to launch a product on the stock market, you'd need a sample size of several hundred. But in, a, in my history and research, I would consider this a strong anecdotal study that you could use to make management guiding decisions. So next slide. Um, so within the first point of contact, uh, it's important to understand that uh, Education is what's known as a large ticket intangible. And, and in order for a large ticket intangible to be um, marketed effectively, it, it needs to, the focal point needs to be what we call the, the synchronous exchange. So that is the exchange where people are either together in person or on the phone having a dynamic exchange uh, and a seri series of guiding conversations that will get that prospective student to a place where they are informed enough that they can make a decision as to whether this could potentially be good for them or not. Asynchronous communication with something that is so complex and so vapor-like as education um, generally creates nothing but nastiness. And, and so, um, Joe, really what we want to do here is, is ensure that all the potential touch points within re recruiting and admissions are designed in such a way that they give good customer service, that we eliminate frustrations um, from prospective students, 
and that we share information in an open and meaningful way and in an empathetic manner so that um, people feel nurtured and loved and they can make an informed decision. So um, you care to expand on that a tiny bit, please? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, when, when I was a rep as well, I think that it's that mindset that you take before you pick up the phone that uh, people aren't calling because they're looking for a specific product or service. Students are calling us because they're looking for change in their life. And so when we, you know, I've jumped on and listened to a few of these mystery shops and I just, I see so many missed opportunities to connect with somebody on the other end of the phone or even in the emails to say, hey, how can we help you? And let's guide them through the process. Like Greg's saying, it's all about the service and being conversational and, and tapping into what they're actually asking for instead of just working them through a, a, a process. Yeah, so it, it really is the, the engagement that we're looking for in terms of best practice is not so much a series of eye-rolling kind of mechanical processes. It really is more about um, intention and empathy are, are kind of the key words. So you obviously want to get the contact information, and, and you want to have that first point of contact service really high. Um, you, when you get people on the phone, you, you want to lead, make it all about them and, and ask about their life and their frustrations and and, and you want to ideally schedule a virtual tour um, and advance things and just people ask people, hey, can I, can we move this along, get more granular? Um, you, you, and the, the key is you, a lot of people will make promises they can't keep just to maintain the interest of the prospective student. And that is really nasty for a number of reasons, not the least being that you can get on to 60 minutes for all the wrong reasons. So um, the other thing that we'll speak to later is you want to really, at the first point of contact, sell the admissions process, not the school. Um, and you want to be able to offer people um, a number of commitment objectives. So if there's a, a shy person or a person who's very pedantic and wants to go slowly, you, you have a, a way to go and help them work in small increments while they learn more about potentially going to school with you. Um, so what you're seeing here, folks, is really a, a 30,000 foot summary of best practice at the first point of contact. So Martin, let's dig in and see, break this down a little bit. So a very basic thing is um, to ask for someone's name. Now, Joe and I are Canadian, so we're too polite or so we've been told on occasion, but we're of the view that when you ask for somebody's name, you make a personal connection. Right, Martin? Absolutely, although I don't think anyone's accused you of being overly polite. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you, Martin, for that nice <laughs> backhanded compliment. Um, um, what we found is that um, there are... Um, many people at first point of contact that really make a point of connecting um, by simply saying, hey, who are you? What's your name? Oh, my name's Greg. Oh, hey, Greg. And it's an ancient tribal thing and uh, just connecting with people by speaking to who they are. And so we, there are opportunities um, where you can actually create a, a process or process to ask the first point of contact people to ask for a name. It's a basic 
human dignity. Okay, next one, Martin. Well, I just want to add one quick thing here. It also makes sense if you need to, you're calling in. If someone's calling in, unless you've got really advanced third-party caller ID recognition, you don't know who the person is, and you can't add them to any system you have to track potential inquiries if you don't get their name, right? Hmm. Yeah. Can, I, can I add something to the name as well? Is one of the, uh, just sort of a, a powerful insight that I got from a few of the mystery shops I listened to, um, you know, just listening to the uh, rep do two different kinds of calls and getting into the call where they say, oh, you know, this is so-and-so, how can I help you? And they say the name, they say, oh, nice to meet you, how can I help? And they go through sort of the motions, I would say. And then shortly after that, we listened to another call where they knew who the person was, and they said, oh, is this so-and-so? And they said, yeah. They go, hi, how are you? It's so nice to talk to you. And just the change in the conversation that happened just because they knew the person. So with, with reps, that's what they need to be looking for is being like totally curious about the person on the other end of the phone and getting their name as that first step. Great point. Yeah, like it could be, oh, Martin, that's a stupid name. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> All right, tell my parents, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what do we have here? Asking for email address gives permission to communicate. So can spam laws are such that um, you, you're not allowed to communicate with people unless you, um, you ask them if you can. And so what we're finding is there's an opportunity for um, for-profit schools and not-for-profit schools to close that gap and to just ask for an email and ask if you can periodically send them information about maybe events or um, invitations to information sessions or what have you. Um, the, what we've used in the past is, hey, we have a taste of program, give you a tiny taste of our school, give you um, limited access to our online library or what have you. and. But in order to go and in order to send people emails, you have to ask permission. And again, it's a point of respect and it's a point of politeness. Many, many schools just they will grab the email through the form fill out or uh, and they just bomb them with emails. When people are phoning in, you have to ask to get the email, or otherwise you cannot communicate that way. That's just basic uh, logic, I guess, hey Martin. Makes perfect sense. I mean, just getting it is, you can't email someone unless you get it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Good. That's good. Okay. Let's move on. Um, now, I don't know about the folks on the call, but when I get left on hold with the Muzak or the, the benign promotional messages or what have you, and it lasts for a little while, I, I, I get agitated. And... Um, so, you know, within enrollment resources, we've run 700-odd mystery shops over the last 11 years, and we are constantly amazed at the percentage of people that are just left hung to dry. 93% is uh, for for-profit schools that will leave somebody on hold 30 seconds or less before checking in is a pretty good stat, but there are still 7% that do not. And then as far as the not-for-profit schools, Leaving people dangling um, for two, three, four minutes is is just really not good service. And um, I think what we've noticed is there's a, a, a relatively high percentage of that activity going on when there is a third-party uh, call center involved 
and they're trying to create a live contact to a school. Um, Joe, do you, you want to touch on that? Yeah, I think you know um, when you're calling someone and they and they say, "Let's put you on hold," or "I'm going to transfer you," and you're left waiting, um, anything could happen in that 30 seconds or a minute. And we've heard just a lot of mystery shops where people just hang up, and so we've missed an opportunity there for sure. Hey, Martin, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think what's important to note here is this is oftentimes a staffing issue, where you don't have enough people like on the left side, the left column, so 38% of increase who called in to a nonprofit or put on hold for 30 seconds or more, or 31 seconds or more. So that is a staffing issue. I, th there's no one for me to talk to because there's three people who can talk and there's more than three people on the phone. So, so you need someone puts on hold. It's pretty straightforward. Well, part of that, Martin, is because community colleges, um, well, a lot of not-for-profit schools, are working on a in a kind of a bureaucratic model, and uh, they um, they're very very tight uh, for for dough relative to the ch the prices they charge for the tuition. So, you know, you you charge um, a cut rate price for tuition. Certain service levels have to be trimmed. That just makes sense. Yeah, something's okay, got to give. Yeah, something's got to give. Yeah, um, burying someone in voicemail is is horrible, horrible service. And and there's so much revenue, in a strategic sense, revenue lost by just burying someone in voicemail. <coughs> if you think of it this way, um, a receptionist, oh, sorry, admissions rep is not in, put them to voicemail. The rep gets it at some point, phones, the person's not in. The person might phone back. The rep is busy. The connection point is somewhere in the range of um, maybe 20%. And it, it, the best practice being the receptionist negotiates a time into the calendar of, a, of an admissions rep. Then, in fact, you can um, your connection point is much more like 80%. And so if that's happening three, four times a day, then that's conceivably 40, 50 more um, juicy phone conversations an admissions rep could have, which would turn into another five or six students a month. So you run those numbers, a tiny little process oversight like this can cost the school millions upon millions of dollars in uh, enrollment revenue. Greg, is that any different than if you actually say, hey, hold on a second, let me take a message for them and actually talk is there is the results any different than if a human being actually writes it down and hands a piece of paper to the admissions person to call back? No, it, well, no, it doesn't actually because it's a. It, remember, voicemail, picking a, a, a little paper message, what have you. You're turning a synchronous exchange into an asynchronous exchange, and it's kind of like when you're fishing and you catch a fish and you release it back into the, the water, catch and release. Whereas um, if you have somebody on the phone, um, they people hate hate voicemail um, back and forth. The voicemail jail—you've heard that term—and the if you if you maintain the synchronous exchange, so the receptionist would say, "Oh, I'm sorry, Sally's uh, not available right now. Uh, let's have a look at her calendar and see where we can um, get you a time." Is it? Um, would you like to talk on the phone or come in in person? And how much time do you have? 
hey, can I get your phone number? Oh, give me your uh, backup phone number too, please. That kind of thing. That takes literally 60 seconds to create, and uh, it, it makes all the difference in the world. The, the dynamics around servicing prospective students just amps right up. Joe, do you care to expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something Greg and I were talking about yesterday is the is the absolute opportunity that the reception has um, to build that connection and even edify the the rep that they're passing them to. So even in the transfer of the call, saying, "Oh, you're you're going to love talking to so and so. You're going to go through this. Let me put you through to them." Uh, and if they're if they're not able to go through, um, asking for an email and saying, "You know, so and so is going to send you a bunch of really interesting information. Let's book an appointment." Just giving those people the opportunity to um, make a decision. But if you actually take it a step further and say, okay, if they don't book that appointment and say, let me put you through to voicemail, the voicemails are typically something like this. Oh, hi, I'm interested in this program and I'd like to book an appointment. Can you please call me back? Or click. Those are really the two options that we're hearing is I'd like to book an appointment so they missed a chance too or they don't even leave a message at all and all your marketing dollars are wasted on that one lead that just decided not to connect with you and they're not calling back. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, there you go, self-explanatory there. Uh, admissions, uh, again, we've been touching on this, is a, um, a synchronous exchange by nature. Um, so you, by extension, you need a phone number. And so 25% um, uh, of the uh, people shopped in the non-for-profit sector uh, requested a phone number, uh, and 43% requested a phone number um, on the for-profit side. I think those numbers should be up in the range of 90, and I think you, you, you can't rely on call display because many people are phoning from work or from a place where they don't want to be called back. You need to actually um, connect with them and request the best phone number for future conversation. And I think what happens here is that it's either not infused into the, the system used by the admissions or recruiting people, or um, people just are just doing their job and they're not really thinking about helping kids get ahead in life. It's more like, I'm processing this phone call. You know, I, and, I think there's, uh, I'm sorry, I think I just realized that this one is, this one is exactly like the other slide. I, I think this is, you, you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, this is when you guys were asking if the admissions advisor, the second person, mm. is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, good. The second person, not the first one. The first one we got on an earlier slide. Yeah, the first person being the reception person or the call center, this now being the admissions person. Um, they're just not connecting in and, and grabbing that information. And from a marketing, for those who are involved in lead generation, this kind of thing has to just pull out your, you must go crazy. <laughs> and they, you know, the, the school leadership comes back and says, oh, it's it's $1,200 a start and going on marketing. And if you factor in, the, like what is appearing here is that, you know, half or three quarters of the leads being generated are being what, what we call in the business burned. They're burned off at source. Um, or wasted, then you're you're really that if the department was efficient and service oriented, they would um, cost per acquisition a student would go from twelve hundred dollars to four hundred, five hundred dollars, you know, six hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. 
All right, what else do we have? Empathy. Joe, empathy, what a concept, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. Do you want to, do you care to speak to this slide? Yeah, I think um, there, there's some, there, just so we're clear, there's some really, really cool stuff happening in both non-for-profit and for-profit in the ways that people are talking to students. It's not, not all doom and gloom. But with the open-ended questions, we're seeing that the faster that somebody can start asking about, you know, why are you interested in this? What research have you done? What's important to you? And so they start, even on the phone, making that connection. The amount of conversions are going through the roof. But we're also hearing a lot of reps that are just, you know, they're, they're, they're busy. Everybody's really busy, especially if they're all making 16 calls uh, to each person <laughs> and sending all these emails. But when they just say, okay, well, what are you interested in? And then they do the, the you know, just the, the information overload dump onto people on the phone and just start really hammering their logic. Um, this is what students are going through. And so the first reps that are making connections and creating these empathetic questions are winning. You know, they're winning that battle that people are coming in for appointments uh, and they're loving it. And so that's, when you hear it on the phone, you can, you can tell the difference between these open-ended questions and just, you know, waiting, you know that skipping rope thing with double dutch where you're just waiting for your turn to jump in? We can hear that often on the phone. Huh. Martin, what are your thoughts? I love that double dutch metaphor. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> exactly right and you know it, it's it's we so Velocify sells uh, our software to a ton of industries and a lot of them are very transactional mortgage insurance etc um, and honestly I don't care the person's name I don't care anything about the person I'm trying to get a mortgage from I just want to know the rate just tell me the rate mm -hmm. you know I'll buy it from almost anybody in uh, education is a very complicated process and the admissions process and so um, it is it, it is I don't, my mortgage guy doesn't need to ask me open-ended questions, what my goals in life are. I just need a rate. So this is the exact opposite of the admissions process, right? It's a very detailed, the first call is at least 20 minutes long, and then you have a second call, and it's a very complicated, very differentiated, yes, they both have university in their name, yes, they both have a .edu name address, but they have no other relation except that they offer the same degree. They're very different in their approach. Different, the technology might be different. The hours that they get to the class, it's synchronous or asynchronous. And having those differentiated points lined up in a, in a, in a conversation is not easy. So the, the final point on this is that with an, uh, education being a, a large ticket um, intangible sale, if you will, um, in order to give this vaporous kind of expensive thing any kind of value, you need to create um, an environment where the prospective student can articulate their corresponding frustrations. So for instance, if you go and, and take somebody on the phone through and, and talk about some of their life and goal-oriented questions and they're perfectly happy working where they're working and they're perfectly happy with their life, um, and the, the odds of them sticking through a a rigorous um, life-changing experience like uh, online education in this case are going to be really um, minimal, tough, and they're, they're not going to throw as much value uh, onto that product as, say, the lady that's been um, overturned for three job promotions because she only has a bachelor's degree and she's angry and she's got a point to make and that person um, throws a lot of value in education. So trying to find motivation for 
um, potential life-changing experiences is crucial. And you do that by asking these kinds of questions. And they're not being done. The schools are losing an opportunity. It takes you a few minutes just to ask these silly little questions, but people don't do it. And, great and also, point. Yeah, yeah, great point. And also, I mean, if you look at any studies about um, selling today and, and what's happening, the way people buy, is people are about 60% of the way through their buying process before they even talk to somebody. We see it with the leads now, most of them coming online, is everybody we talk to, the students are coming in much more informed, but it doesn't mean they have the right information. So these open-ended questions are our opportunity to find out what information do they have? What insights can we provide them? And how can we lead them through this complicated process? And this doesn't have to take hours and hours. This is some really good key questions right from the beginning. All right, Martin, what's next on our agenda here? Okay, we can go through these reasonably quickly, um, but they are um, they are interesting. Um, anytime recruiters or admissions reps imply a guaranteed graduation, it's problematic. Now, folks, on this uh, graph, you want to be mindful. This is not 20% against 80%. If you look on the left, it, it's recalibrated from 22 to 29%. So uh, between the two sectors, approximately a quarter of the admissions reps or recruiters are implying, hey, graduation, hey, no problem. And with um, all the accreditation and regulation on the for-profit side, th this is really, really bad. And the, the message to the non-for-profit schools is with your college outcomes um, legislation coming down the pipe in the states in about a year to two years, that behavior will be really, really bad. So you might as well get ahead of the curve and kind of try to squeeze it out of your system uh, if you can. Okay, it's next a bad one. idea. Even if it's not regulated, it's a bad idea. Well, yeah, you don't want to lie. You don't want to create false expectations. Oh, and here's another one along those lines is guaranteeing employment post-graduation. Um, so, you know, Corinthian, they went under largely because they were um, not being uh, trans transparent about their uh, employment stats, and that may not have been a career services issue. It may have been a, a, a uh, an admissions issue where there was a, hey, you can get a job, no problem, in once you graduate in this field, and and then they graduate, and it's like, oh, that admissions rep lied to me, you know, kind of thing. Happens too much. Like in the case of this survey, it's like one out of five times. That's too high. But the good news is uh, that reps, um, like there was a, an issue there on occasion where reps were guaranteeing financial aid. Hey, we'll get you financial aid, no problem. Just fill out an application, no problem, no problem. Didn't happen here. So that's good, that's good rigor. That's great good news. Rigor. Yeah, great news. Now, um, Joe, uh, the, the core to the process in recruiting and admissions is to help people advance their journey. So you cannot help someone in a life-changing event um, with a 15-minute phone call. You really need to, uh, on this theme of, of synchronous exchange, you need to, uh, if you're an online school, move them into a deeper meeting. Or if it's a campus school, you want to bring them in for a visit. You want to qualify them, do a career assessments. Uh, objectively, 
you want to move them through the school, have them audit a class, do an education plan, and help them really have a deep, deep assessment of whether this is the right opportunity. Would you would you say that's that's the case, sir? Uh, absolutely. I mean, for for me, like I'm a, I'm a psychology and influence kind of guy, but first and foremost, I'm process. Um, and it, no matter what you're doing, um, you have to test these processes. And I think you know when when we hear, and I mean, I've been guilty of it before, is we sort of pre-qualify people on the phone and say, you know, are, are these people ready to go to school or not? Are they interested? And we sort of just churn and go through the motions. Um, and if they're not willing to book that appointment, uh, you know, that's sometimes that's a bit uncomfortable uh, for a student. So selling those sort of in stages and those multiple objectives you can have on the phone is something that a lot of reps aren't doing. Is They're saying, do you want to come in for a tour or not? And if they don't, that's where they leave it. And then they bombard them with these follow-up calls. So, you know, there's a lot of different options that you can test from, you know, coming in for a tour, getting that email address, getting the contact info, getting them to agree to receive content, subscribing to something, watching a video, coming in, sitting in for a desk for a day, um, or just even another phone call. And a lot of reps just aren't even asking for that next step within the student's comfort zone. So if we make one small change to our process, it's testing what people respond to and, and how we're actually moving people further ahead, not just letting them stall. Now, what's interesting to me, Martin, is that the um, advancing that, if you can go yeah, back to that slide for half a sec, from a business, strategic business metrics perspective, if, um, if you have a half a million dollar lead generation budget, and in the case of, uh, well, either one, we'll say the non-for-profit side on the left, um, then really $375,000 of that half million dollar budget are essentially being flushed down the toilet simply because the admissions rep has not invited the prospective student to come in for a, either a further meeting or a visit. Now, the, I'm not, this research is not uh, saying they've successfully accomplished the task. Be mindful, this is simply um, requesting um, people to ad advance the sale, as they say, in business. So the admissions reps or the recruiters are not even asking, hey, would you like to learn more? Would you like to do an education plan? Would you like to? So this is such an easy thing to say. It's, well, let's see, how many words is it? Would you like to come in for a visit? That's nine words. So that's the nine magic words there, Martin, that can change the fortunes of a school um, forever for the good. Do you care to comment on that? I think I think the important thing, yeah, so some people are saying, oh, it's an online school, you can't come in. Yes, that's, the truth is you can't come in, but you can set up the next appointment. And some schools, even though they're online, do have a ground base if they're hybrid. Um, I, I think the important thing to realize here is that it's super easy to do that. And I think that some of these slides, going back to the stereotype, somewhat speak to how used to the for-profit schools are at speaking to someone on the phone who's interested in going to school versus the not-for-profit schools who are not used to that, to be honest. Uh, they're, they're, still, they're kind of late, not late to the game, but they're new to the game about doing admissions by the phone. And the way the most important, the way that is, it, um, it shows up is with online programs where <clears throat> 
it's not it, there is a phone call it have to because there's a it's a competition and you can't just wander into a campus and do a tour and say I'm sold I love the frats and I love the the football team it doesn't matter when you're online you're never going to meet your coworkers you know your other students you're not going to a frat it's an online program it's a professional degree these are working adults yeah and to that end um for the, those who are not online that are saying you know it's an online study um, the only difference is, is uh, you have a, what's called a meaningful conversation. Instead of a visit, you have a, a, a meaningful conversation, which tends to be 30 to 45 minutes long. And so that speaks back to the best, earlier best practice, and that is you, you don't sell the school when you first talk to people on the phone. You, you talk about the process of, um, of discovery. So you're really saying, look, before you actually go to school, you need to do a thorough assessment, a thorough review of where this outcome can potentially take you, the, the pitfalls, the, all the details that you may not be aware of, and I need to take you through that so that you're fully informed, and I need to have a meaningful conversation with you at length to take you through that. Um, Joe, so really it's, it's not about selling going to school. It's about selling the analysis. Would you would you not agree? Totally. I mean, even when we talk to online schools, uh, the question we ask is, how many people make a decision on that first phone call? Very few. And when they do, it's it's kind of an anomaly. So people aren't making decisions on the first call, and they know that, yet they're not asking them for another call or another meeting or another step. Duh. And so it's 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 kind of a catch-22. If you're not going to ask them, you won't get that, but the sale happens uh, the next one. You know, the, the big part, as Greg's saying, is, is it's about helping outline the process. And I think a lot of us, it's, it's that fear of rejection. If I ask what's, what's going to happen, what's the worst they're going to say? They're saying, no way, you're crazy. Or they'll say yes. And in the middle, they'll say, well, I'm not quite sure. What should we do? And if you look at what you've got there, Martin, for the 20-day 20 20 day process, I would love to tell somebody, you know what? Over the next few weeks, I'm going to send you some information. I'm going to try and help you the best way I can. And I'm going to send you a series of emails. And I'll call you. And we're going to talk. You tell me how you want this to go. And you do that with, on, on the phone call. People are going to respond and say, man, you guys really helped me out. But we're not hearing that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do have a thought here that some people also might be hearing, and this is a little straw man, but I, I, I've heard these conversations before. I've seen them on LinkedIn conversations and Twitter. There is this does not speak to the quality of your program versus your competitors. Totally. There are going to be people that are not a fit for your school, whether it's because of grades or because they don't have online access. Duh. If someone calls into you and you say, "Do you have access to reliable internet?" and they say, "No." Tell them to go to your ground-based school or refer them to their school. There you go. If they if they call and they say, I didn't go to, I don't have my bachelor's, and you require that, tell them to go get it. Help them out with that. It, it, it doesn't speak to the quality or your admissions process. It speaks to the next logical step, irrespective of those things. Well, it really is an ethical dilemma for many admissions reps where they, they've been taught to um, qualify people to make sure that they're a good for a whole bunch of reasons, yet there's top-down pressure um, by, you know, you, some of these big organizations use the term asses in classes, which is so crass, but it really is reflective of a, transact a transactional mentality. And um, whereas now, you know, the regulators have essentially squeezed that attitude out of the industry, um, and so, and it's soon to be squeezed out of, well, with not-for-profits, it tends to be a different issue. It tends to be uh, more benign neglect, 
and um, so it, it's kind of the both opposite ends of the spectrum. And you know, pick your poison, right? I think um, you have to have the courage to really assess people objectively and have the courage to say to somebody, I don't think this is right for you, and, and have them walk away to another solution. Great so, point. So, Martin, I think that's kind of the end of the... Uh, yeah, let's go to some questions. We've got a ton of questions here. Uh, there's our contact information, guys, by the way, and it's kind of blocking it. Let me unblock it. Um, it's you, you know, reach out to us. Uh, the, we're de the, as I said before, the recording of this, you can watch it again, send to your colleagues, but these are the way to reach out to us. All right, so first uh, question. Um, yeah, I know. There's a lot of questions about the slides being blocked. Uh, so let me skip those. Um, oh, God. Oh, um, the first question was 391% of what? Um, and the question was referring to the speed, the, the enrollment lift um, on that first slide, that if you contact someone in the first minute, you're 391% more likely to enroll them than if you call them at any other time in the enrollment process. So 391% lift is if you call them in that first minute versus calling them in two minutes or calling them in three days or calling them in two, minute, uh, two hours. Next question. Um, uh, do, do the stats apply to undergraduate versus MBA programs that you are sharing? And I guess this is a question overall, uh, Greg. What are the differences between um, a professional degree like an MBA and the admissions process versus the admissions process at undergraduate program, not-for-profit versus for-profit? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, with the undergrad programs, it's uh, less directed, and it's uh, the, the nature of, um, of an undergrad program tends to be people who are entering in, um, typically starting with a, a science or a, an arts survey, um, a BA survey, and, and they're doing kind of an exploration because all the level one, level two types of courses are general wisdom and knowledge kinds of programs. And then they pick up their career orientation in the third and fourth year of their education. So what typically happens is um, it's conceptual marketing with catalogs and with lots of juicy, interesting courses. And it's kind of self-serve marketing. What happens is because the service levels at that, the baccalaureate level tend to be particularly first, second levels are so weak um, that students use auto-populating uh, application tools to get go and apply for five, six, seven different schools. And then they wait, and then the first one that they, uh, they get that they like, they tend to go with. And um, this is why the accepted application to start ratio within the baccalaureate piece is so awful. Like, I think it's in the range typically of 25%, 30% will typically um, uh, not only make it to a start. And, and this is in part because the, the assessment that we've been speaking of earlier is not present in a, that undergrad environment. Yeah, so uh, um, that's yeah, I think that's good. Uh, I just want to work through a couple of these other questions. Uh, the time frame, the call. What are the time frame the calls are taking place? This must be so people who missed the beginning of the presentation when we looked the results for the forms being filled out. 
uh, the results were based on taking, we filled out forms on school sites and waited 22 days for them to get back to us and tracked calls and emails. So 22 days, and that 22 days is based on our best practice study, which I've, which we can go back and, and go through in a little bit when the recording. When um, is the best time of day for people to, admissions reps to reach out, and what is the best day of the week for people to reach out? That is a great question. So. Uh, according to our data, it's nights and evenings and weekends. So um, nights and weekends are when we find that our clients have the best results. Um, and we have, Greg and I have done entire presentations on, yes, it's not convenient for you and your admissions team to do that, but that's when it's convenient for adults to talk to you. The kids are asleep, school work's done, homework's done. You know, the weekends you don't have as, you don't have as much work to do if you have any work at all, other than soccer practice and Sunday school. There's some time there. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, really, then the admissions uh, departments should reconfigure the hours of their employees to work evenings and weekends. How easy will that be to do? Exactly. You're right. You got to ask them to do it, or get a second team and have them do nights and weekends. Yeah, there you go. Um, so, go ahead. Just a, good. So, a couple of questions. Um, so, they, uh, your suggested uh, Karen, Karen, I think it's pronounced Karen, had a great question. Your suggested methodology involves primarily phone and email reachouts. How do you recommend reaching out to young prospects who do not answer their phones, not listen to voicemails? Current studies for this generation prefers texting over phone and email. Thoughts? So, Joe, um, texting you, um, there, there's debate about like whether where to use texting, and texting is more and more being used as first point of contact. Where in the recent past, it's been viewed as a uh, secondary communication tool. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think regardless of the technology, whether it's email calls or texting, we need to do it in a way that's non-intrusive. Um, texting is usually a good method to use once you've already made contact with somebody. That's what we found. Um, and schools that are using it to confirm appointments or to have like a quick chat with their students uh, is working really well. Just and especially for the young generation. And um, the as it said Karen is right. Um, we read a study from Vonage that uh, people are opening their or listening to their voicemail 14% less now than they did the last five years. And that comes from, you know, they just, people don't want to check their voicemail, they see the call display, and they just, you know, they wait to hit that delete button when it comes through. So, however, and this is part of what a lot of schools are doing now is testing what works and what doesn't for their process and how to integrate that in, again, not being, um, you know, intrusive, but making sure that it's at the students, um, you know, it's comfortable for them. Yeah, and, and I guess really that speaks back to, um, the quality of what is being communicated. So uh, a lot of most people in the admissions and recruiting field do not spend the time to really connect up what comes out of their mouth and what comes off the fingers to the keyboard as it relates to the burning passions, fears, desires of the prospective students. There's a There tends to be a disconnect and um, a, perhaps a lack of empathy uh, as admissions and recruiting staff tend to get swept up in the um, 
transactional nature of having to do business every day get stuff done when really uh, a really good admissions leader will free their admissions people to do the right thing and explore and engage with the prospective student. And if they're after their assessments with these students, they're not getting the starts, then really it's a, um, a product problem. They have a weak product that's not fitting well with students. So really, I think um, weak admissions performance really has to sit with leadership and how they are um, crafting and developing um, programs, uh, offerings for students to consider. In other words, um, you can't um, put lipstick on a pig. You cannot polish a turd. You cannot. It all comes back to creating an, an outstanding offering, and then the admissions will work really well. You know, uh, yeah. I, I want to add one last thing to this texting question. If you can get someone to go to your school based on in 140 characters, God bless you, man. You're you're the best admissions person that has ever worked in any school. Um, and I, with I that, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. That's the last question. We just give, go ahead and last comments. Go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I've, I've seen some. I've seen some reps just really do awesome using text. By you know, they they've made that first phone call, and just like we said, the 22 day plan, saying what we're going to do over the next little bit. We're going to share some information. I'm going to help you. And if you have questions, you know, send me an email, give me a call, or even text me. And we've seen that work really well. And then a rep and a, and a potential student is texting. They just have a quick question about something. Maybe they're in the, another meeting. They can't answer their phone. They're not checking their email. And so now they've created this dialogue. And when it gets a little bit uh, too much information, they say, hey, well, let's uh, send an email or set up another appointment. And it's working really, really well as an instant engagement tool. Because people check email not instantly, and they don't always answer their phone. But most people respond to text right away. Great. Well, thank you all very much, uh, especially to my brothers up in, in Northern, uh, Great White North. Um, we are going to be sending everybody a link to the recording, and we'll be sending everyone who attended or registered a copy of the uh, white paper. Uh, it is still in draft form, but it should be ready any, any week now, and you'll be getting it as soon as it gets out. Great, Martin. Uh, thank you for organizing this. and. Uh, uh, Joe, thank you for your uh, lucid uh, uh, insights. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.